Last Sunday, we focused on the first portion of Paul's sacrificial example to the brothers and sisters in the Corinthian church who were quarreling and stumbling over some of their Christian liberties, in particular the right to eat foods sacrificed to idols. Um, what he's done so far in chapter 9 is remind them of his own rights as an apostle, as a preacher, as a church planter of the Corinthian church. Like them, he was a free man in Christ and he could eat whatever he wanted. Um, and like the other apostles and Christian ministers that were moving around, uh, he, he also had the right, he says this, to bring a believing wife on his missionary journeys with him, thinking of probably Peter who did that. And he also had the right to monetization or to be paid for his ministry because the one who works for the gospel should be paid by the gospel. And we, we looked at all of this in chapter 9, verses 1 to 12a. And Paul reminded the Corinthians of all of these rites so that he could set for them a sacrificial example in the next section. He describes what he did with his rites and why. So if you would, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians we will be looking at chapter 9 once again. This time we'll look at 12b to verse 23. Of course, there's one last section that we'll take a look at, Lord willing, next week in chapter 9. But right now we're kind of focused right in the middle. And we've basically divided chapter 9 into three points. And so, of course, last week we looked at point 1, and today we'll look at point 2. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Oh, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for how you've carried us along thus far, not just in life, but even in this worship service by your Holy Spirit, Lord. And so now it's time for us to focus on your word more so and to hear from you from your word. And I pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear, um, hearts to receive, wills that desire and want to obey, and the energy and strength to obey. And uh, so we need to be hearers and doers. That's what you've called us to be. That's what you've equipped us to be. And so, Lord, that's what we're aiming for today. And, Lord, may we learn. Last week, Lord, we learned about Paul's rights. And this, this week we learned why he laid them down the purpose for laying them down and the significance of that. And so teach us from your word what that looks like today. And I pray, Lord, that by the time we walk out of here this morning, that we would all, as your people, be far more willing and desirous to lay down our own rights for this great cause that we're going to learn about today. And so we commit ourselves to you, Lord. Be glorified now. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's pick up where we left off last week. And that would be with number two, Paul relinquished his rights for the sake of the gospel. Everything that he said in verses 1 through 12a, talking about those rights and how he had even higher rights than the average Joe because he, was, uh, he could receive double honor as a preacher and minister, which means payment and these sorts of things, monetization, all of that 
was said not just to boast in some weird way, but to build a case for how he has rights too, so that he could relinquish, show how he relinquished those rights for the sake of the gospel. That's what he's building, building up to, and that's the main point of this next section. And I think we'll pick up at 12b. This is what he says. After unpacking all these rights, the right to be paid, the right to do all these things, he says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. He's speaking of Barnabas and himself. Barnabas and I have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Boom. There it is. And everything from this point on is an elaboration or explanation as to how they laid down the rights. But this is the point of him boasting about the rights, just to show how he laid these things down. And the right that he has in mind here, all of them I would think, but there's one that really stands out, and it's the one that he pumped more than anything in 1 to 12a, and that is the right to being paid, the right to monetization. And he really expressed that in verses 11 to 12a as we lead into this next text. So that's really what he has in mind here. He's talking about monetization. He's talking about being paid by the gospel. He declares, after talking about how he has the right to monetization, he talks about how he and Barnabas did not make use of this right, and he expresses why. There's one primary reason here, which is really the theme of this whole text, he did not want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Kind of building up to 12a, right? And then, bam, he hits them with this. Now, you might be led to think that what he's doing now is condemning any idea of getting paid by the gospel. Well, how on earth could he be thinking about that when he just talked about how Christian ministers are entitled to that? He's not condemning every kind of payment to a pastor or a salary or anything like that. He's, that's not what he's doing. He's not condemning every instance of monetization as an obstacle to the gospel. There's no way that he could be making that point because he just talked about how Christian ministers should get paid. I think he's talking about for him personally, in his own mind and according to his own conviction, I mean, after all, he just stated emphatically that Christian ministers should be paid, verses 9 and 10. So he's not condemning every kind of monetization or that that's an obstacle every time. It can be an obstacle, but not always. What he was referring to here is very interesting because he doesn't say in the text exactly what he means or why he's now condemning the idea of monetization as a stumbling block. If you know the context, then you know what, or better yet, who he's referring to. And you really can't even get to the bottom of it here in 1 Corinthians. You have to look in 2 Corinthians to get to the bottom of it. What he's dealing with here are what we call hucksters. What is a huckster? That's someone who preaches for profit. That's someone who preaches just for the money. And there were hucksters going into this church and into many other churches that Paul had planted and just preaching for profits. That's who he's dealing with here. They went from church to church, 
peddling the word of God for profit. 2 Corinthians 2.17. Have you ever heard of or seen the movie Leap of Faith with Steve Martin? It's actually a really good movie. It's Steve Martin plays Jonas Nightingale, who is a traveling evangelist. Really, what he is is a huckster. He is a huckster. He goes from town to town, community to community, city to city, and he loves the big cities because that's where he makes the most money to preach a gospel of health and wealth so that he can get paid. And it, throughout the movie, it shows them counting the money and talking about how much they took in in Kansas or wherever it is they are. That is a huckster. Have you ever heard of Marjo? Marjo is a 70s huckster. Uh, there's a terrific documentary out on him that was meant to be positive toward his life and ministry, but really exposes that kind of ministry. So it had a reverse effect for him. And he ended up becoming a movie star because, you know what, those guys are tremendous actors. But that's a huckster. That's the idea. That is what Paul is dealing with here. He is talking about hucksters, those who, who preach, you know, the word of God for profit, those who combine fake miracles with their preaching and those things in leap of faith, you've got a woman who walks in and the next thing you know, they've put her in a wheelchair because she's older and really doesn't understand what's going on. They take her up front, then they ask her, in the name of the Lord, stand up and dance. She could already stand up and dance, but now here, here she is and everyone's praising it as a miracle. This is the kind of Benny Hinn level stuff that they do. The child agrees. That was a screech. I thought there was an owl in here. So that's the kind of, that's what a huckster does. Hucksters scam vulnerable people out of their money. This is who Paul is talking about, the huckster. They are the ones who put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. They cause people to think that the purpose of the gospel is something other than the purpose of the gospel, like health and wealth, rather than the forgiveness of sin and a new life in Christ. They're always preaching something and calling it gospel when, in fact, it's not actually the gospel. That's how they put a stumbling block in front of the actual gospel. They even cause, you know, I would say just the, the in a general generic sense, the outsider, those who are already suspect of religion, they cause those types to conclude that Christianity is nothing more than a money-making scheme. That's what the huckster causes. That's another way that they put a stumbling block in front of the actual gospel. And I would just add my own input here, which I like to do on occasion, but that was my perspective before I was saved. I thought it was a money-making scheme. You know, every time I went to church, uh, the only thing I heard or picked up on, and I did go quite a few times, believe it or not, but the only thing I ever picked up on was that time of offering. Look, they just want the money. I knew it, you know. And, and there's some churches that have about four offerings during the service. There's one by my house. But I, I was just suspect of these things. All they care about is money. And it certainly did not help early on, a little over 20 years ago. Rachel, I believe, was already saved. I was not. I was, she was running to the Lord. I was running away from the Lord. And we went to a small church here in town and she wanted to go to church, and she was making me go to church. It was like an ultimatum, either go to church with me and be a Christian, and, or you're getting divorced because you're a bonehead. 
So, of course, I went to church because divorce, I didn't want to lose my wife and family. So I went, but we went to this small church a couple times, and um, it was hilarious. I think I've told the story before, but they did trumpet worship. <laughs> yeah, I know. The guy just, the pastor stood up and played a trumpet, and people sang along with it. I was like, man, are the walls of Jericho getting ready to come down? You know, it was, and he'd get halfway through the song and say, I just played the wrong song. Let's start over. You know, and I was like, good Lord, is this really what it's about? And you know what? He was a well-meaning pastor, a super nice guy, small church like ours. But he actually invited himself over one night. And Rachel was like, you know, yeah, you can come over. You know, you need to know my husband's not a believer and all that and what have you. But so he comes over to our house one night. I don't remember if it was a Saturday or Sunday. I don't remember when it, what day it was during the week. But I just remember having a really, really big glass of wine, you know, and <laughs> like sitting on my couch, you know, with my, my wine. And Rachel's like, do you have to drink? I said, yes. <laughs> There's a pastor coming over here. I need to have something in me. And she's like, you're a loser. I know. Uh, so he comes over and sits down and uh, uh, literally proceeds to talk about giving. And then he starts giving examples. Like, you know, we have one couple in the church that gives $700 a month. And they set a really good example and all that. And I'm just sitting there with my wine buzz going, these guys are crooks. All they care about is money. Again, that's all I heard. Whenever they talked about money, in fact, when they weren't talking about money, all I heard was they're talking about money again. And so... That did, I kind of saw him as a huckster, you know, and he really wasn't. But it was a bizarre thing to start talking about. You know, why would you start talking about tithes and offerings like he was trying to get us to join his church and to start giving? And after Rachel, I believe, let him know that I wasn't a believer, why are you asking, an, uh, I wasn't a believer, why are you asking an unbeliever to give? So, that did not help, right? How, how would that experience help me as one of those suspect people that's like, all they care about is money? And this guy comes over, and all I cared about was wine. Well, you can have some money, but you're not taking my wine, pal, you know? <laughs> it's rosé, sir. It's not wine. Well, I know, but still, it tastes good. It's real sweet. And that just did not help at all. And in some ways, this pastor, not intending to, I believe, he put a stumbling block in front of the gospel, didn't he? Did he not? I, 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 don't, I, I say this in grace and mercy. I don't hold it against him. I'm just saying, I, I know that if I were to really stop and think about this, there's probably been a hundred times where I've done something as foolish and put a stumbling block in front of the gospel. But that's what he was doing, and it didn't help at all. I remember thinking all this guy cares about is money. And, you know, and we, we look here, you got the hucksters. The same thing is playing out in the first century. It's always been that way. There were some people, I'm sure, that just went into the temple prior to Christ just to make offerings to the Lord, so thinking that they could get something out of it. This is just human nature. Um, but, you know, we look at Paul's example here. Here is a guy that of anyone in the New Testament that had a right to monetization who just refused to take it because he was, I wouldn't say worried, but a little bit anxious and concerned about creating a stumbling block. Like if Paul had come over that night to our house, could you imagine if we were invited to go to Paul's church? Well, back then I wouldn't have valued it. I'm like, what's an apostle? You know, but 
Paul comes over, he doesn't mention tithing. He, he knows who he's dealing with here. I've got a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. The last thing in the world this guy is going to talk about is tithing. He's not going to talk about it. He is going to preach the gospel to Mr. Wine Guy, right? You know, the Lord turned water into wine, and it was the best wine that's ever been made, right? You know, but do you know that he's the living water and only he can say, I mean, this is what he would have done. He would not have gone in there and said, we have a family that gives 1,200. Can you be like them? <laughs> no, never. I could never be like them. Look at the example of Paul here. He relinquishes his right to monetization because he did not want to create any of those obstacles. He wanted to, as it says in verse 18, present the gospel free of charge. What does he mean there? He means I did it without charging anyone. If somebody wanted to give me a gift, fine, but I did it because that way because I didn't want to turn off unbelievers or Christians who were really young in the faith. I just didn't want to shut anyone down. Notice what he says in the, in the middle of verse 12b, but we endure anything. Okay, so after talking about how he relinquished that right, we did not. Nevertheless, he says we did not utilize that right. Then he talks, right after that, he talks about how he had to endure anything. Do you think that he's saying, well, we forfeited that right and other rights and we had to endure? Or do you think that what he's actually saying here is that there was an impact on his life and ministry because they did not utilize that right? I think that's what he's saying. Because a refusal to take monetization means you're going to have to endure a few things, aren't you? Huh? I think that's what he means. They had to endure certain things because they forfeited that right. They were forced to endure. Endure what? How about working long hours as tent makers to meet their own physical needs as well as the physical needs of those who toured and traveled with them? They had to endure bivocational work. Get up in the morning, go to work, do a job, draw a paycheck, get a shekel or a mina or something. This is something they had to endure. The sacrificing of monetization necessitated bivocational employment. Working hard at the mill so that he and others had food, clothing, and shelter, whatever they needed. Now, of course, I think it's broader than that. They had to endure a lot more, not just through the forfeiture of, of monetization, but, I mean, they forfeited all their rights. Anything that they perceived, that he and Barnabas perceived as getting in the way of the gospel, they forfeited. And so they had to endure a lot of things because they gave up a lot of rights that they had. And yet Paul and Barnabas, they joyfully sacrificed their rights. They gladly endured financial hardships to keep the path to the gospel free of obstacles and totally clear. That was, what that was their focus, keeping the path to the gospel clear of any obstructions, anything that they might create to prohibit the hearing of the gospel, maybe the acceptance of it, although Paul knew that a person had to have the spirit, you know, things are spiritually discerned. He understood all that, but he just did not want to take the chance of getting in the way. These guys, literally by forfeiting the monetization, they totally set themselves apart from the money-grubbing hucksters. And it made them more winsome because we already talked about how a preacher, a minister asking for money 
totally turns off unbelievers. It throws them off. It throws off people. Even the, the new Christian, it can mess with them. And it can even mess with the veteran Christian if a pastor talks about money all the time. Right? Amen? I mean, does that get weird all of a sudden? Some guy's talking about money all the time. They got six offerings during the service. Go up the street up here. You'll hear it. They have giving angels that oversee their worship down the street. Didn't know there was such a thing as a giving angel. Guess my theology's goofy. Uh, Paul just did not want to play this game, and he was willing to sacrifice to keep the pathway to the gospel clear. And that is the opposite of those hucksters. They would never go anywhere and preach for free. They had to get paid to preach. Verses 13 to 14, he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So what Paul does here is after stressing how they relinquished the right to monetization, he returns to a defense of financial support, right? It's an interesting thing to do to pull a switcheroo here. He built a case for financial support, talks about he, how he forfeited, and now he goes back to an argument in favor of it again. And he appeals to the Old Testament in verse 13 and to the New Testament or the words of Jesus in verse 14. The principle, once again, is that those who work in holy things warrant financial support. Hence, those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple. Remember, we talked about it last week. When worshipers brought their offering and got burned on the altar, most of it went to the Lord and some of it went to the priests, the Levitical priests. And we talked about that last week. In fact, in Numbers 18, Eight, it talks about how Aaron and his sons were to receive a portion of those offerings. And then in Deuteronomy 18, 1 to 4, it talks about, and that was later on after Aaron and his sons, the Levite priests would receive a portion. Part of that tithe or that offering would go to the priests. That's how they ate and fed their families. And Jesus taught the exact same principle Regarding, like in the Old Testament, the principles taught for the Levite priests. In the New Testament, Jesus taught it for Christian ministers. Paul's statement in verse 14 is, by the way, it's a paraphrase of Luke 10, 7, where Jesus declared, for the laborer deserves his wages. That's what Jesus said. Paul's just paraphrasing him. In 1 Timothy 5.18, we see Paul cite Deuteronomy 24.15. Remember that text that says, do not muzzle the ox? And uh, we also see him, he's citing, he's citing Deuteronomy 24, 15, as well as Luke 10, 7, as he exhorts believers to give elders double honor or financial compensation. Kind of talked about that last week. In summary, Paul's argument for monetization is based on observations of everyday life. Remember the soldier, the farmer, um, the shepherd, verse 7. It's based on Old Testament law, the Deuteronomy text, verse 9. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, based, his argument is based on the greater importance of spiritual realities over physical realities. That was in verse 11. And most importantly, I say it's based on the words of Jesus here in verse 14. Paul has made one great argument for paying ministers in chapter 9 thus far. Now, let's go to verse 15. 
he does the same thing that he did <laughs> a couple verses ago. He goes back to the forfeiture, the relinquishing. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Listen to what he says. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What on earth is he talking about here? Paul declares decisively, emphatically, that he has not availed himself of the rights he possesses. And I have these rights, and I have not taken them. I have not secured them. I have not demanded them, is what he's saying there at the beginning of verse 15. His point, he says here, continuing on, is not to remedy the situation or his financial situation so that the Corinthians will respond by providing him with material support. That's not at all what he says he's trying to do here. He simply wants to kind of boast about his right and then boast about relinquishing it because that's really what he's after here. He wants to boast about preaching the gospel for free. And I think that's something that's probably boastworthy, even though we all think that pride and boasting is bad. But you've got to understand really what he's driving at here. I think at first glance, it seems a little strange, maybe a strange point that he's making here at this juncture or maybe at any place in any of his epistles. Would we all admit that whenever somebody boasts about something, even about preaching the gospel for free, it's a little awkward for us because we know that pride and boasting is not good. So the, verse 15 has a little bit of awkwardness to it at first glance, especially after he absolutely wrecks all such human boasting in 1 Corinthians 129, 321, 4-7, and chapter 5, verse 6. All those texts talk about how human boasting is utterly worthless. And now we see human boasting. So what, what exactly is he doing here? What is, what's going on here? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's juxtapositioning himself with those hucksters, okay? The hucksters boasted about being paid. Paul is saying, oh, yeah, I'm boasting about not being paid. That's what he's doing. Does that make sense or what? That's what he's doing. These guys go around preaching for profit, and they boast about it. Look how much I got paid. They're like Marjo, counting the money on the bed, hotel room bed in the middle of the night. Man, we took in six grand tonight. They boasted about this stuff. The hucksters do, and hucksters do that. And Paul is saying, I boast about doing it for free. That's what he's doing here. He's boasting about not getting paid. And he says he would rather die than lose his ability to boast about no pay since this is one of many things that set him apart from the hucksters. And really what he's doing, he's being facetious. He's being highly sarcastic here. What he's actually doing is poking a bit of fun at the Corinthians' foolishness for paying the hucksters, their wastefulness, their foolishness. That's what he's doing. He is, in a sense, saying, you've been paying false teachers to preach to you. I preach the true gospel to you for free. That's what he's doing. This is a little salt in the wound. Is it inappropriate? No, I think these people deserve far more than this, right? They, these are the goofballs of the century. So, no, he's rubbing a little salt in the wound, trying to make his point using 
facetiousness using extreme sarcasm to illustrate just how ridiculous it is not to pay everyone for the gospel, but to pay false teachers like charismatic hucksters or whatever you wanted to call them back then. It was before charismania. But believe me, they were charismatic in every way. It's pure sarcasm, pure sarcasm. He's saying those charlatans charged to preach a watered-down false gospel to you, and you pay them like that. You pay them. I charge nothing to preach the true gospel to you. I prefer to keep it this way so that I can continue to boast about it to you. That's what he's saying. Verses 16 to, uh, 16 to 18, longer section here. He says, and he brings clarity here to what he means because he's worried now that they, they're going to misunderstand. They're not going to, you know, their adventures are missing the point. They're not going to understand his sarcasm. They're going to take him serious. And he is serious in a way, but sarcastically serious. So he's, he's going to give some explanation. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Okay? Those who preach the gospel, you, 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 that's not something to boast about. Look what I did with the gospel. It's God's gospel, bonehead. You got nothing to boast about here. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. He pronounces a curse on himself. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. That's an interesting phrase. We'll get to that. What then is my reward? That my preaching, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So this is a, a clarifying set of statements here. He didn't want the Corinthians to miss the point of his sharp sarcasm. He was not boasting about preaching the gospel like, you know, hey, uh, did you pick up on these doctrines that I espoused or expounded for you and how clear they were? And, you know, did you like the way I presented the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? You know, blah, blah, blah. He's not at all previous to this in the previous verses boasting about preaching the gospel. And by the way, I think he was a great preacher, and so was Peter. In verse 16a, he says that the gospel gives him, really, no minister, any kind of ground for boasting, right? Why is that? Because it is God's gospel. <laughs> I didn't make it up. I didn't, I'm not the architect behind it. I didn't invent it. It's not an, an invita uh, uh, invention or concoction of man. You know how people are always saying, well, the Bible's just written by men and it's man's ideas. Well, clearly this person who says this, that's their opinion. They don't understand the gospel. Uh, no human being in their right mind would write a gospel that utterly decimates and destroys human power. Men have always written to exalt themselves and to exalt humanity. They're very humanistic. They do all they can to make man look good. And the Bible does all that it can to make man look like a slug, powerless, a worm. So there's no way that man could have invented this gospel. And if man didn't invent this gospel, how could man possibly boast about this gospel, right? This is God's gospel, John 14, 24, Romans 1, 1, the gospel of God, it says there, God the Father wrought it, God the Son bought it, and God the Spirit brought it 
It is his plan, his work, his message, his salvation. Therefore, we boast about him and his gospel. He gets all the glory, right, for the gospel. If we boast, we boast not in what we do with the gospel, but in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit who work together to bring about our eternal salvation. Our salvation is a triune work performed by the triune God, his plan, his payment, and he brings it to us when we are dead. He makes us alive in Christ. Yet when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 16b, Paul describes how Preaching the gospel is a necessity for him. See that? He must do it. It's not just required of him. It is, but it's something that he feels within him that he must do. Like Jeremiah, the prophet, had the same interesting dynamic, or I wouldn't even call it a problem, but really it's an anointing or a blessing. God's Word was a fire in Jeremiah's heart, a fire in his heart, a fire in his bones, and he could not hold it in, Jeremiah 29. Paul is saying, like Jeremiah, I have a fire in me. I must preach. I can't go without preaching for, for even a small amount of time because the Word of God is just living and active in me and it wants to come out. I, I want to vocalize it. I want to preach it. This is what Paul is saying. He is compelled. It must come out of him. In fact, he probably felt like he would just be consumed by this fire in him if he didn't let it out. And I say every True preacher. I say true because there are non-true preachers. And we just talked about Jonas Nightingale from the movie and the Hucksters. Every quote-unquote true preacher, I believe, is graciously blessed. I don't know if I'd call it anointed, maybe. Maybe anointed, but truly blessed with this same inner burden, this inner fire in their heart, in their bones to preach the word. I think that everyone who's called by God to preach, they feel that. I think even the average Christian feels it, but not the same way. They are compelled from the Spirit in them to share the gospel, but the preacher, it's more like a fire that sometimes is barely contained. And I think Bruce, he's nodding his head because he would agree with this because since he retired, he hasn't been doing much preaching. And it's not just retirement, but he's going through these treatments and all that. And the first thing he said to me the other day when we were connecting on the phone was, I, we got to figure it out. I, I got, let's get something together after I'm done with these treatments. Let, what he's saying is I feel it welling up in me again, and I need to let out the word of God. And hey, you want to come up here right now? Go for it. And I would say that it's there in every true preacher, but not always burning at the same temperature or as hot. It's not like every preacher, true preacher, just is walking around like a flamethrower ready to go. It, you have seasons where, you know, you're burning really hot and really want to preach all the time. And then there's times where it kind of comes down and, you know, and it, so it, it burns really hot at times and not as hot at other times. But I think that it's almost always there, whether it be flicker, flame or inferno, it is there in the true preacher. And, and you know what, how you can 
tell sometimes if it's there by the way the minister delivers the word, right? If he's like a dead fish up there, you know, like a big salmon, you know, it's like, what's he doing, man? It's like, you know, one time uh, R.C. Sproul had preached a message and a, a woman came up to him afterwards and said, I love the way that you make the word of God come to life. And he says, hey, I really appreciate that compliment, but you need to understand that I don't make the word of God come to life. It's preachers that try to kill it. The word of God animates me and makes me come to life. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Hebrews 4.12, one of my favorite verses. The word of God animates, propels, empowers, inflames, combined with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is where the passionate preaching comes out. And believe it or not, I think Rick knows this well. He talked about it when they first started coming to this church, the difference between teaching and preaching. And teaching is much more even-keeled in just, you know, you know, whatever. And I think every real preacher is a preacher-teacher. They teach while preaching. But in preaching, you know, I, you can kind of tell when a guy is anointed in this way or blessed in this way because they're passionate. The Word of God animates them. It, it makes them kind of explosive at times, right? They're not all like Ben Stein, you know, like, you know, like Ferris Bueller, Bueller. I mean, there are guys that are attempting to kill the Word in pulpits. And it makes me wonder if they're, if they're blessed with this reality. Um, and sometimes these guys are really good teachers, but they're not good preachers. But would we all agree that there should be a certain level of intensity and passion in the preaching? Why is that? Because it's the Word of God. That's why it's the Spirit of God carrying through the Word of God through the minister. How can you just sit here and blah, 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 blah? I don't get it. And it happens. Hey, praise God that the Word is being preached everywhere well, not everywhere, but it's preached in a lot of circles, even when it's not all that passionate. But I think you can see this in preachers. I'll, 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 I'll tell you right now, I don't think Rick Countryman watches our things. Hi, Rick, if you're there. Um, Rick Countryman has this, this gift that I'm talking about. There is a passion and a fire in that man. And I'll tell you what, I felt like he was going to light me on fire in the early days of my faith through his preaching because he was a pulpit pounding passionate preacher and it was it was exhilarating to listen and to watch how God worked through that man and I just loved it how many of you like bold passionate hardcore preaching do you prefer that or do you like Bob Ross let's take over to Revelation and paint a happy little cloud in chapter 12 what do you want do you want passion or do you want Right? I mean, seriously, I know I'm being goofy, but I like to sit in front of passionate preaching. This is why I love the Shepherds Conference. This is why I love the preaching. I know, Vody, you're not watching, but this is why I love the preaching of Vody Bachman, because that guy, he is, he is on fire when he preaches. All right, now let's stop talking about that. <laughs> Flicker, flame, or inferno, it's there. And it was there in Paul, and he's talking about it. I had to preach. In verse 16, see, Paul pronounces a woe, which is a curse on himself if he refuses to preach the gospel. Now, of course, the language here is hyperbolic, right? I mean, would he literally curse himself? I don't think so. He's using hyperbole. But what he's saying is, 
It's as if he had no choice about preaching since Jesus Christ confronted and saved him on that Damascus road. Right? Acts 9.15. He feels like since he was he met the Lord face to face on the road to go and incarcerate and kill Christians, he was saved and given his commissioning right then. He feels like, I have to preach, man. The Lord met me face to face and redeemed me and saved me from my dead religion and called me to preach, and I have to do it. That's what he's saying here. In verse 17, he describes the burden that he feels. You know, whether he gets a reward or not, he must preach the gospel. Whether it be of his own will, like he wakes up on a Sunday morning and uses his will and decides to go ahead and preach or not, no matter what, he must preach whether he wills or doesn't will to do it. He's talking about literally, even if I had to preach against my will, I still have to preach. I still have to do it. I think what he's saying is there's just some days where that fire's not burning very hot and I don't feel like doing it. Amen, brother, if that's what you're saying. If not, shame on me. Why does he say this? Because he says he had been what? Entrusted with this stewardship. What stewardship? The preaching of the gospel. That is a stewardship. Look, you need to understand, Paul saw himself as a soldier in the Lord's army. He did. Because in 2 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, he calls Timothy a good soldier, like a good fellow soldier. The, these, these apostles, these ministers, these first century guys didn't see themselves as the Lord's civilians. These are the Lord's soldiers in the Lord's army. And what is he saying? You know, what, 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 what does he mean he, he refers to himself as a soldier. That's the kind of language he's using here. What does he mean in terms of militaristic or military language? Well, a soldier has done what? Relinquished his or her rights to Uncle Sam and to the branch in which they serve. Right? Soldiers do what they are told no matter what. No matter how they feel, no matter what they're thinking, no matter what they're wrestling with, no matter what they're struggling with, when the horn blows, they have to go out and get into, 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 the, into the line and they have to do whatever it is that they are commanded to do. If a private first class is given a task and wants to perform that task really well, he performs it. If he is given a task and does not desire to do it that day and doesn't want to do it, he doesn't get to go back to the barracks and sleep. He still has to do the task, whether he wills it or not. He is not under his own will. He is under the will of the United States government. He has to do what he has to do no matter what. Why? Because it is his duty. It is her duty. As a soldier, he or she is there to carry out the will of the army, not their own will. This is the way that it works. And this is what Paul is pointing to here. As a Christian soldier, he was there to carry out the will of God and fulfill his duty to preach the word when? 
in season and out of season. You can almost translate that whether he feels like it or not. No matter what he thought, no matter what he felt, no matter what his condition was for that day, he had a duty to fulfill it under the leadership, sovereignty, superiority of General Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.2. You see, you need to understand something. In Paul's mind, this is really the way he thought, in Paul's mind, the Great Commission was a call of duty. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a, a good idea or something that, you know, if, when you get a chance, could you preach the gospel? It was a call to war. There is an, a, an adversary. There is a kingdom of darkness. It's all there. The Great Commission is a call of duty to take up your weaponry and engage the enemy, the sword of the spirit, the buckle of truth, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, right? Now, you're thinking Ephesians, what does Ephesians 6 use? It uses this language, right? What is the armor of God? It is for the soldier of God or soldierette. That's what it's for. The Great Commission is a call of duty. Paul does not see himself with any options. I must preach. That is the artillery I was trained to operate. And I have to fire salvo after salvo against the forces of darkness, against the adversaries of God and the adversaries of the people of God. That's my job. Whether I want to do it or not, I'm behind that gun. That's what he's saying. In verse 18, Paul describes his reward. It had to do with relinquishing his right to monetization so he could present the gospel free of charge. The reward is the satisfaction of knowing that he put no obstacles in the way of the gospel. That's really the reward. Asking for money when he's out preaching like the hucksters, asking for money may have tripped people up, maybe shut them down to gospel truth. It certainly would have had a bad effect on unbelievers like it did me. His abstention from pay therefore kept the path to the gospel clear. If people were going to stumble, Paul wanted it to be over the truth itself because the gospel is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. Let them trip over the truth. Let them not trip over something that I might add to it or some filter that I might cause them to see it through. He did not want anyone to stumble over any tertiary issue like monetization, eating food sacrificed to idols or whatever other right he could practice. This is what he's teaching them here. He wanted to keep himself, keep his needs, and keep his rights out of the way and keep the path clear. He was determined to know and preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified during his missionary journeys. 1 Corinthians 2.2. It's what he says. I was determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I wasn't concerned about monetization. I wasn't concerned about how I could have a pork sandwich. I didn't care about bringing a, a, a believing wife with me. By the way, I'm single and I prefer that. Go back and read chapter 7. He didn't care about those things. He only cared 
about bringing to these pagans a non-paganized gospel because a gospel becomes paganized when you start adding all these tertiary pagan-sounding things to it like paychecks and everything else. He just did not want to cause any sort of stumbling blocks. And his desire for the Corinthians was similar to his own. He wants them to pursue the same reward, but in a different way. They could be rewarded with the satisfaction of knowing that they put no obstacles in the way of the gospel if they relinquish their right to eat food sacrificed to idols. Because in their context, that created an obstacle. It tripped people up. Their abstention from eating food sacrificed to idols could therefore, in theory, likewise keep the path to the gospel clear. What is Paul actually talking about here in verse 18 in terms of reward? You want me to make it as simple as I can? He's talking about having a clear conscience. That's what he's talking about. That's what we get when we stay out of the way of the gospel and do not create stumbling blocks for others. A clear conscience is what you get. You get a better ministry, but you get a clear conscience. Really what he's saying is a clear conscience is his reward. Knowing that I didn't take pay, which could have caused stumbling blocks, has kept my conscience clear as I have kept the path to the gospel clear. This is exactly what he's saying. Now we ask the question, is a clear conscience a good reward? It's the best reward. It is. It is the best reward. It is totally worth it. Just think about that, knowing that you have shared the gospel with someone and left out all of the tertiary things. It's not that the tertiary things aren't important, but coming to my house at night after dinner and talking about money was a tertiary issue that should have never been brought up. He took, as far as I'm concerned, a huge pallet full of money and put it on my living room floor, and then the gospel was on the other side of it. I couldn't even see the gospel. He brought a tertiary issue in, which is an important issue, but it's secondary. That man should have preached only the gospel to me. And I probably would have prayed the prayer of salvation because I was on like two glasses of wine. <laughs> it is totally worth it. It is totally worth it. A clear conscience is worth it. Why is that? Because Paul has already taught us in chapter 8, verses 11 to 12, that a defiled conscience is wounding and destructive. That nagging conscience sometimes won't let you sleep. Think about that, knowing that you put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel for some person you were trying to reach, that is not going to sit well with you. Causing a less mature, less knowledgeable believer to stumble because of the exercising of one of your rights, that is going to be a nagging, nagging conscience. So if we take ourselves out of our presentation and tertiary issues and stick to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ, regeneration, the Holy Spirit in us, and eternal 
um, inheritance, these sorts of things. The fall of man, of course, you've got to use that. Man, you, that's a clear path. And if the person is going to trip and fall, let it be over that. And they probably will. Unless the Spirit attends the preaching, they're, they're going to hate it. But that's okay. The Lord can deal with that, and He will. If they're elect, at some point, He's going to save them. But when you start adding things to it, you know, this is exactly the point that Paul makes in verse 24 to 27 as he talks, he gives a running illustration of shedding off the things that don't allow him to run like he should. He's talking about a clear conscience. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. My goodness, what a verse. This is probably my favorite verse in chapter 9, if not one of my favorites in the whole epistle. I just love it because it shows the heart of Paul. He knew he was free in Christ. He could eat whatever he wanted. He could bring along a believing wife. He could receive monetization as a Christian minister. If anyone deserved to get paid, it was him and Barnabas. He could do many, many other things that were forbidden under the Old Testament law and Old Testament covenant, you know, all those dietary restrictions, clothing restrictions. He could wear patchy pants. I mean, he could do whatever he wanted. He was free in Christ. He was under grace, no longer under the law. The guy was as free as a jailbird. He was free. He was free. He was free. He knew this. He knew that the Son had set him free and that he was free indeed. John 8, 36. Nobody understood this better than Paul. Go back and read Galatians. He knew it. He knew it better than any of us. He understood this better than any of us. And he lived it out better than any of us. He was a free man. But that is not how he saw himself nor his life. Although free, Paul says, he made himself a servant to all. The Greek word for servant is doulos. I don't, I love the ESV, but I don't care for the way it renders it into servant. I think it should be rendered slave because doulos is not as, it's translated as the word, English word slave, not as many times as servant, but quite a few. If you've got a, I think, a NIV, RSV, or a NASB, that's how it's rendered. And I think that's stronger. What comes with a stronger connotation, the word servant or slave? Slave. It conjures up all sorts of thoughts here. We think of transatlantic slavery. Don't think of that. But slave is a more potent word here. And that's, I think, truly what he says when he says doulos. The purpose for Paul's, he says he enslaved himself to all the purpose for this self-enslavement. This is self-enslavement, by the way. Even though Christ is his Kyrios or Kyrios, Lord, and Paul was his servant or slave, he's talking about a self-enslavement. I have made myself this way is what he's saying. And the purpose for this is seen at the end of verse 19, and it's really spectacular, that I might win more of them. Mm. The term win is used five times in verses 19 to 22. It actually functions as a synonym for save in verse 22, that I might save them is what it says in verse 22. Paul is saying he curbed his freedom. He subjected himself to all as a slave to win more of them to Jesus Christ. Or as Mark Taylor, a great commentarian, put it, to make the greatest possible gains for the gospel. That's what he says he did here. 
Verses 20 to 22a, here's examples. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, uh, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And then 22a, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I, I think, uh, let me see a show of hands. How many of you have heard this text and you're familiar with it, right? We, uh, to the Jew, I became like a Jew, right? We know this text, but did we know the context to it? That's another question. I didn't, I didn't until I studied it this week. What we see is four different categories of people to whom Paul was a slave or servant to. The first category is the Jews. I think this affirmation is just astonishing because it shows that Paul's ethnic identity as a Jew was no longer the primary reality in his life. Right? He now sees himself as a Christian, not as a Jew, not as not he doesn't even see himself as a messianic Christian, that's a Jewish Christian or a Hebrew Christian, Hebraic Christian. He didn't see himself as any kind of Christian. He left off all the prefixes. He left off the adjectives. You know, why is that? Because when you add an adjective, that's actually what you are. The gay Christian is gay, not a Christian. You start adding adjectives, you start adding prefixes, you're basically telling people what you are. Paul is not denouncing Jewish people here. He's simply saying, I don't identify with them anymore in that religion or anything like that because he sees himself as a, how sad and boring, a regular run-of-the-mill Christian. I'm just a Christian. That's how he sees himself. In saying that he became like a Jew, right? How could a Jew have to become like a Jew? <laughs> he doesn't see himself in that way anymore. That's how you have to become like them. What was he saying? In saying that he became like a Jew, Paul was undoubtedly referring to the Mosaic law, obviously, especially in observance of maybe the weekly Sabbath and some of the purity or the purity laws of the Jews. I think that's what he's referring to. Examples of this approach include the circumcision of Timothy, Acts 16, 1 to 3. Paul circumcised Timothy, not because Timothy's salvation depended on it or he was trying to convert him to Judaism, but for cultural reasons so that he could bring Timothy with him when he ministered to the Jews in the synagogues. He couldn't take an uncircumcised Gentile into a synagogue. If he'd have done that, he would have never even entered, got in. Nobody would have listened to him. So he became like the Jews when he discussed circumcision with an uncircumcised Gentile that he was taking on his missionary journeys. And Timothy humbly agreed and said, I don't want to cause any stumbling blocks. I'll become like the Jews like you say I should so that we can reach the Jews. Because if he doesn't make this move, he doesn't even have Jewish audiences. That's one way that he became like the Jews. We also see Paul following Jewish customs and taking what was probably the Nazarite vow, Acts 18, 8, uh, Acts 18, 18. When he entered Jerusalem, he purified himself. He had already been purified by, by the blood of Christ, but he takes up a Jewish rite of purification here, uh, and he pays for others. He pays for the vows of others. Why? Not to create a stumbling block for the Jews, not to shut them down as an audience, but to refute claims by Jews that he was demanding a full abandonment of the Mosaic law. Acts 21, 20 to 25, if anyone was under the impression, any Jew was under the impression that he was preaching against the law or to jettison the law, he never would have had any Jews to preach to. He becomes like the Jews in that he, uh, he 
obeys some of their rituals and some of their rites, not because he has to, but because he wants to be able to reach them. Think of it like this. Paul adapted living as a Jew when he was with the Jews. Why? He says that I might win Jews to Christ. That's why. The second category is those under the law. You probably thought, why is he talking about Jews twice here? Because they're the ones that are under the law. Nope. This category seems identical with the first, but it's not. There were non-Jews who lived under the law. Um, it's not the same as the first category in every respect. There were Gentiles who lived under the law. They placed themselves under the Mosaic law. They were called God-fearers. That's the biblical term for these people. Think of the centurion uh, whom Peter evangelized in Caesarea. His name was Cornelius. He and his household were devout God-fearers who gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. That's all of Acts 10. Paul adapted living as a God-fearer when he was with God-fearers. Why? That he might win God-fearers, those under the law, to Christ. Third category is those who are outside the law. This is just another way of describing the vast majority of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Paul does not elaborate on what it means to be like the Gentiles. Um, David Garland suggests that Paul was, quote, speaking theologically about living under grace, a relationship with God based on faith in Christ apart from the law. In other words, he became like a Gentile by giving up any reliance on heritage or on the law for salvation, end quote. So when he was around Gentiles, he was a lawful person. He believed he was still under the law of God in a sense. He couldn't just go and sin it up with the Gentiles and pagans who wanted to sin, but he would talk about the grace of Christ and the freedom that he had in Christ. That message would not work with Jewish people. It would in a sense, but not like it would with non-Jews. And so that's what he did there. He adapted and became like those. The fourth category, it's the final category, is the weak Okay, Paul was referring to spiritually weak believers and unbelievers who are likely to stumble over things like eating food sacrificed to idols and tithing and monetization and tertiary issues or Christian freedom issues. He's talking about the weaker brothers and sisters in this church. He used the term weaker to describe them a chapter earlier. Paul adapted living as a weak person when he was with the weak. In other words, he lived in a way that accorded with their cultural sensibilities. Why? That he might win the weak to Christ. This family is the way of love. It is. And he is, in a sense, exhorting the stronger, more knowledgeable group or believers who love their liberties to follow his sacrificial example. How so? By relinquishing their rights and becoming weak like the weaker, less knowledgeable believers in this church. For what purpose? Since the weaker, less knowledgeable believers were already saved, he, he, it couldn't have been for that reason, right? I think it had to do with preventing any further stumbling blocks and keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace so that every brother and sister in this church at every, at every stage of their faith could be built up in holy faith. 1 Corinthians 8 9, of course, Ephesians 4 3, and Jude 1 20. So he's exhorting the stronger to become like the weak. How do they, how do, they do that? By f relinquishing those rights. 
Become like those who don't yet understand their liberty. Don't cause them to stumble. That's how you become weaker. That's how you, you're making yourself, even though you're strong, you're making yourself weaker for the sake of those weaker brothers and sisters. That, as I said, is the way of love. And it is equally applicable to the lost. You don't evangelize by talking about tithing, talking about some secondary issue that's going to trip them up. You just present the fall and the rising of salvation in Christ. That's all you talk about. Keep it simple. Verses 22b to 23, our last section for this morning. We're cooking. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them its blessings. Oh, my goodness. Maybe this is my favorite verse. Sorry, I got to retract that earlier statement. I'll, I'll, make it, um, I'll make it 23. In verse 22b, Paul rounds off the discussion of adapting to various social and cultural entities with a summary statement which captures his fundamental motivation uh, in his interaction with various people. This is what motivated him as he interacted with various people. Uh, he says he became all things to all people. Uh, let me just pause and say this is a very, very hard thing for us Americans to do because we are taught from birth to be individuals and self-seeking. We ever stop to think that, because this is the way of Christ and this is the way of love to become all things, to reach people. Have we ever stopped to think why that's so hard for us? Do you think that it's because for 53 years I've had pumped into me, you're worth it, you know, maybe it's Maybelline, except without the Maybelline because that's weird for me to put that on. But that's the mentality. You're worth it. It's all about you. You're an individual. You do what you do to make, make you happy. You get married to be happy. She's there to make you happy. It's all about you. This is such a stinking narcissistic culture. And to just stop and think about how I've got to lay down all that I am for Christ. Because that's the cost of discipleship. And I should be willing to do that to reach others. That is... That is so countercultural here. It is more countercultural in America than it is in first century Israel. It's worse now because everything about our society is saying, Brian, be all that you can be. And, and, and there is even some preaching that will say, get the people that are in your way out of your way so you can become who you're supposed to become in the Lord. By the way, the Lord put all those difficult people in your path so you could become who he wants you to be removing them, you don't become who you need to be. That's the reverse of it, but that's not what these jokesters, hucksters are preaching. This is so countercultural; it's just ridiculous. Becoming all things to all people. This means that Paul was willing to adapt culturally as long as he didn't violate the law of Christ, right? Loving God with all his being, loving his neighbors as he loves himself, Mark 12, 29 to 31. You, you can't become just like the culture, right? We're in the world, not of it. But you can adopt some cultural norms or at least some of that lingo or language, not the perverse stuff, not the stuff that violates the law of Christ or violates the law of God, but you have to be willing to adapt in some way to reach the people that you want. If you go away to missionary school, the first thing they do is teach you about the culture you're ending, uh, gonna land in. They teach you the language, the cultural norms. You don't go in there as a bright-eyed American, hey, how's it going, everybody? You know, they're like, 
can you put him back on the plane? Right, with clicks. I mean, that's how they're talking. I mean, you have to learn the language. You have to learn what's normal culture. You have to even, what's normal in their culture, you have to even eat their food. And in some places, that food's just, man, you just killed it two seconds ago. I watched it. You know, it was, it was bleeding, and now it's bleeding, you know. He, he is, he's describing how he became all things, how he adapted, but yet he doesn't violate the law of Christ to love God with everything that he is and to love people as his self. His flexibility is ascribed to what? His desire to save some, if at all possible. This is what motivates him. This is why he adapts and becomes like the Jew or like the gentle or like the God-fearer or like the weak or maybe even like the strong. I think in a way he was exhibiting what the strong um, philosophers when he was in Athens at Mars Hill. He, was, he didn't go in there as a weak guy that didn't know anything. His audience would have said, get the heck out of here. He had to go in there and sound like he knew what he was talking about and used examples. He adapted by saying, you know, you have a memorial to a, a nameless God, and I'm here this morning to tell you who that God is. That memorial is a memorial not to the unknown God, but to Yahweh, the God of the gods, the God above all lower G gods. He adapted. He adapted. You see him adapting at Mars Hill, don't you? Yes, he adapted. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. In verse 23, he just expresses why he relinquished his rights, why he adapted, why he, 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 he didn't take the monetization at times, why he didn't do these sorts of things, like he wasn't like some of the other apostles and all that, not that he's slinging hash at them, but he just says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. That's those who are saved. He might share in those gospel blessings with those who get saved. His aim was to advance the gospel in every place and in every way and become a partner with others in those gospel blessings. Question is, is this our aim? You know, do we relinquish our rights when necessary for the sake of the gospel? Do we adapt so that we might win some to Christ. And, and I, I, I have difficulty with the language, even though Paul uses it, because the only soul winner is the Holy Spirit. But he does work through these vessels, these broken pots. So I think it's okay to say that. Spurgeon talked about being a soul winner quite a bit. And Paul says he wanted to win some to Christ too, but he knows who's the real winner. It's the Holy Spirit. But is this our desire do we even think like this? I know I did early on, and this really challenged me. I don't think like this like I used to. Do we, do we adapt so that we can win some to Christ, obviously, without compromising the law of Christ? You know, Paul is not saying I became, you know, he doesn't mean that, you know, I became like Gentiles in every way. I was getting drunk with them. I was carousing with them. I was chasing women with them to reach them for Christ. That's counter... <laughs> That's not good. You're still, you're still set apart. You still have to be different. You know? Had a guy the other day uh, at a gig. He was a, a magician of all people. He was a huckster. No, he wasn't. But I was at a gig, a corporate gig, and they, they hired a magician, and he was doing all this stuff, and I thought it was very entertaining. And uh, at one point, he comes over to me and goes, um, so what church do you belong to? I didn't even know the guy. And I said, uh, Redemption Hill? Yeah. 
He goes, I could tell. How could you tell? You know, because you're not acting like most of these people in here. Cussing and carousing and, you know, running around, drinking hard, and you're not acting like them. I said, well, I haven't had a chance to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Been stuck behind the booth. How can I get loose? I got moves. Look at this. You know, it's like, that's not a move. That should stop. No, he just, he just noticed. He just, he could just tell, you know. You can almost tell today if somebody's a Christian by the way they don't speak. Because every other word out of a person's mouth is an expletive today, even smart people. And smart people are now saying only the really, really smart use a lot of expletives. Like that's a sign of intelligence. I think it's a sign of small vocabulary. Those are replacement words. So, and I used to cuss like a sailor. So I wasn't adapting. I was just being me in that moment because that's who I am. Now, I, I, if I stub my toe or do something, sometimes there's things that come out of me that shouldn't. Um, you know, I, there's nothing up here I could trip over, fortunately. But, you know, I mean, sometimes we make mistakes and do those things. But, you know, is that how you live? Is, are these your desires? You want to reach people? You, you can't be identical to the culture to reach people. But you have to understand the culture and not avoid every aspect of it because if you go so far with that you'll be so odd you nobody will even pay attention to you they just label you as a weirdo and that's it and you don't want to do that you know god saves us from the the penalty power and eventually the presence of sin so we don't love sin anymore uh, but and we need to guard our lives with the way we live around people we don't want to cause stumbling blocks but sometimes I think Christians have more of a monastic idea and they need to completely and thoroughly disconnect in every imaginable way. And if you do that, then how are you going to fulfill the call of duty? You can't do that. You're, you're a person who is saved by grace. That's what distinguishes you. And yeah, you live your life differently, but you still, you know, I, 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 I don't think you need to make the gospel relevant. I think it's very relevant. You just need to stick to the gospel. And when you find opportunities to share it, share it. You know, if you're on a hospital bed, that's a great opportunity to evangelize and talk about how your hope's not in this physical body because you know it's falling apart. It's in Christ. Adapt. Just adapt. It's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. Do we desire to see people saved, sanctified, and glorified in Christ? Those are those gospel blessings that we want people to enjoy with us. This was the way of Paul. And you know what? He was, as we wrap up, he was just simply imitating Christ. That's all he was doing. He was imitating Christ, who is the OG, original relinquisher and adapter for the sake of the gospel. Christ is. He relinquished his divine privileges and adapted in the incarnation, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He became a man. He became a servant, made himself lower than the angels. Right? He emptied himself of divine privilege, of divine right. Philippians 2, 6-7, that's what that means. He did not empty himself of his deity. That, I won't even get into that. He just stepped out of glory, enthroned, and condescended, and came down here. And being in the likeness of God did not consider that to be a thing even grasped. That's what it means to empty himself. He lost nothing except divine privilege and right. 
He adapted by becoming a man in the incarnation and by and he and he relinquished rights by stepping down out of glory. He knew no sin, but he adapted on the cross and became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made him sin for us, meaning he bore our sin. That's an adaption. A few moments later, he did what? He relinquishes once again. He relinquishes this time. He says, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. He relinquishes his life on the cross to pay for our dirty, horrific sin. 1 John 2.2. And then on the third day, he adapted once again, didn't he? And he rose from the grave victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, obviously Romans 4, 25. Christ set the example in relinquishing and adapting. He set the example through his life and ministry. Paul was simply following it. And we are told to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. I'll end with a great quote from Thomas Schreiner. This is good. Just listen to this. Believers have rights, but those rights are always to be exercised in love so that Christians live for the benefit and salvation of others. The pattern of a believer's life is to be cruciform, which means sacrificing one's preferred way of life for the benefit and good of others. Amen? That is the message thus far in chapter 9. That's what Paul was driving at right there. And that's what he displayed through his example.